Chapter Five of Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Five. Carl kicked up the snow and moonshot veils. The lake boomed. For all her woolen mittens, ribbed red cotton wristlets, and plush caps with earlaps, the cold seared them. Carl encouraged Ben to discourse of Gertie and the delights of a long and hopeless love. He discovered that actually Ben had suddenly fallen in love with Adelaide Benner. Gee, he exulted, maybe that gives me a chance with Gertie then. But I won't let her know Ben ain't in love with her any more. Jiminy, ain't it lucky Gertie liked me just when Ben fell in love with somebody else. Funny the way things go and her never knowing about Ben. He laid down his cards. While they plowed through the hard snowdrifts, swinging their arms against their chest like milkmen, he blurted out all his secret, that Gertie was the slickest girl in town, that no one appreciated her. Oh, oh, jeered Ben. I thought you were crazy about her, and then you start kidding about her. Swell bunch of chivalry you got you and your Galahad. You don't you go jumping on Galahad or I'll fight. He was all right, but you ain't, said Carl. You hadn't ought to ever sneer at love. Why, you said just this afternoon. You poor Yahoo, I was only teasing you. No, about Gertie, it's like this. She was telling me a lot about how Griffin's going to be a lawyer about how much they make in cities, then I've about decided I'll be a lawyer. Well, you were going to be a mechanical engineer. Well, can't a fellow change his mind? When you're an engineer, you're always running around the country, and you never get shaved or anything, and there ain't any refining influences. An absorbing game of what we're going to be made them forget snow and cold-squeezed fingers. Bennett was decided was to own a newspaper and support C. Erickson, attorney at law, in his dramatic run for state senator. Carl did not mention Gertie again, but it all meant Gertie. Carl made his round trimming the arc lights next day, apparently a rudely healthy young person, but really a dreamer, lovelorn and misunderstood. He had found a good excuse for calling on Gertie at noon and had been informed that Miss Gertrude was taking a nap. He determined to go up the lake for rabbits. He doubted if he would ever return, and wondered if he would be missed. Who would care if he froze to death? He wouldn't. Though he did seem to be taking certain precautions by donning a Mackinac coat, two pairs of trousers, two pairs of woolen socks, and shoe packs. He was graceful as an Indian when he swept on skis, he had made himself across miles of snow covering the lake and dazzling in the diffused light of an even gray sky. The reeds by the marshy shore were frost-glittering and clattered faintly. Marshy islands were lost in snow, hummocks and ice jams, and the weaving patterns of mink tracks were blended in one white immensity, on which Carl was like a fly on a plaster ceiling. The world was deserted, but Carl was not lonely. He forgot all about Gertie as he 
caked his skis by the shore and prowled through the woods, leaping on brush piles and shooting quickly when a rabbit ran out. When he had bagged three rabbits, he was besieged by the melancholy of loneliness, the perfection of the silver-gowned Gertie. He wanted to talk. He thought of Bone Stillman. It was very likely that Bone was, as usual in winter, up beyond Big Bend, fishing for pickerel with tip-ups. A never-stopping dot in the dusk, Carl headed for Big Bend, three miles away. The tip-up fisher watches a dozen tip-ups, short automatic fishing rods, with lines running through the ice, the pivoted arms signaling the presence of a fish at the bait. Sometimes for warmth he has a tiny shanty, perhaps five feet by six in ground area, heated by a powder-can stove. Bone Stillman often spent the night in his movable shanty on the lake, which added to his reputation as a village eccentric but he was more popular now with the local sporting gentleman, who found that he played a divine game of poker. "'Hello, son,' greeted Carl. "'Come in. Leave them long legs of yours up on shore if it ain't got room.' "'Say, Boone, do you think a fellow ever ought to join a church?' "'Pens. Why?' "'Well, suppose he was going to be a lawyer and going for politics.' "'Look here.' What you're thinking of becoming a lawyer for? Didn't say I was. Of course you're thinking of it. Look here. Don't you know you've got a chance of seeing the world? You're one of the lucky people that can have a touch of the wanderlust without being made useless by it, as I have. You may, you may wander in thought as well as on freight trains, discover something for the world. Whereas a lawyer, they're priests. They decide what's holy and punish you if you don't guess right. They set up codes that it takes lawyers to interpret, and so they perpetuate themselves. I don't mean to say you're extraordinary in having a chance to wander. Don't get the big head over it. You're a pretty average young American. There's plenty of the same kind. Only mostly they get tied up to something before they see what a big world there is to hike in. And I want to keep you from that. I'm not roasting lawyers. Yes, I am, too. They live in calf-bound books. Son, son, for God's sake, live in life. Yes, but look here, Bone. I was just thinking about it, that's all. You're always drumming it into me about not taking anything for granted. Anyway, by the time I go to Plato, I'll know. Do you mean to say you're going to that back? Creek nunnery, that black horned university. Are you going to play checkers all through life? Well, I don't know now, Bone. I know it ain't so bad. A fellow's got to go someplace so he can mix with people that know what's the proper thing to do. Refining influences and like that. Proper. Refining. Son, son, are you going to get demoralized? If you want what the French folks call the grand manner, if you're going to be a tip-top, a number one, genuine grand seigneur, or however they pronounce it, why, all right, go to it. That's one way of playing a big game. But it when comes down to a short bit, freshwater sewing circle like Plato College, where an imitation scholar, 
teaches you imitation translations of useless classics and amble-footed girls teach you imitation party manners that make you just as plumb ridiculous in a real salon as they would in a lumber rack camp why oh say i've got it girls eh what girl have you been falling in love with to get this plato idea from eh uh, i ain't in love bone no i don't know pine you are at your age you got about as much chance of being in love as you have of being a grandfather but somehow i seem to have a little old suspicion that you think you're in love but it's none of my business and i ain't going to ask questions about it he patted carl on the shoulder moving his arm with difficulty in their small dark space son i've learned this in my life and i've done quite some hiking at that even if i didn't have the book learning and the get up and get to make anything out of my experience it's a thing i ain't big enough to follow up but i know it's there life is just a little old checker game played by the alfalfa contingent at the country store unless you've got an ambition that's too big to ever quite lasso it you want to know that there's something ahead that's bigger and more beautiful than anything you've ever seen and never stop till well till you can't follow the road any more and anything or anybody that doesn't pack any surprises get that surprises for you is dead and you want to slough it like a snake does its skin you want to keep on remembering that chicago's beyond jerolaman and paris beyond chicago beyond paris well, maybe there's some big peak in the Himalayas. For hours they talked, Bone desperately striving to make his dreams articulate to Carl and to himself. They ate fresh fried on the powder-can stove with half-warm coffee. They walked a few steps outside the shack in the ringing cold to stretch stiff legs. Carl saw a world of unuttered freedom and beauty, foreshadowed in Bone's cloudy speech. But he was melancholy, for he was going to give up his citizenship in Wonderland. Gertie Cowles. Gertie continued to enjoy ill health for another week. Every evening Carl walked past her house, hoping that he might see her at a window, longing to dare to call. Each night he pictured rescuing her from things, rescuing her from fire, from drowning, from evil men. He felt himself the more bound to her by the social recognition of having his name in a journalman dynamite the following thursday one of the pleasant affairs of the holiday season among the younger set was held last friday evening when gertrude cowles entertained a number of her young friends at a party at her mother's handsome residence on maple hill among those present were mademoiselle benner and rusk who came in for a brief time to assist in the jollies of the evening miss benner carlson wasselsloss mudland ripka smith lansing and brick and Messrs. Roy Cowles, his classmate, Howard Griffin, who is spending his vacation here from Plato College, Carl Erickson, Joseph Jordan, Irving Lamb, Benjamin Rusk, Nels Thorson, Peter Storhoff, and William T. Upham. After dancing and games, which were thoroughly enjoyed by all present, and a social hour spent in discussing the events of the season in J.H.S., a more delicious repast was served, and the party adjourned one and all, voting that they had been royally entertained. The glory was the greater because at least seven names had been omitted from the list of guests. 
Such social recognition satisfied Carl for half an hour. Possibly it nerved him finally to call on Gertie. Since for a week he had been dreading a chilly reception when he should call. He was immeasurably surprised when he did call and got what he expected. He had not expected the fates to be so treacherous as to treat him as he expected, after he had disarmed them by expecting it. When he rang the bell, he was an immensely grown-up lawyer, though he couldn't get his worn navy-blue tie to hang exactly right. He turned into a crestfallen youth as Mrs. Cowles opened the door and waited, waited, for him to speak after a crisp. Well, what is it, Carl? Well, uh, I just thought I'd come and see how Gertie is. Gertrude is much better, thank you. I presume she will return to school at the end of vacation. The hall behind Mrs. Cowles seemed very stately, very long. I've heard a lot saying they hoped she was better. You may tell them that she is better, Mrs. Cowles shivered. No one could possibly have looked more like a person closing a door without actually closing one. Lena, she shrieked, close the kitchen door. There's a drop. She turned back to Carl. The shy lover vanished. An angry young man challenged. If Gertie's up, I think I'll come in a few minutes and see her. Why, uh, hesitated Mrs. Cowles. He merely walked in past her. His anger kept its own counsel, for he could depend on Gertie's warm greeting. Lonely Gertie. He would bring her the cheer of the great open. The piano sounded in the library, and the voice of the one perfect girl mingled with the man's tenor on Old Black Joe. Carl stalked into the library. Gertie was there, much corseted, well powdered, wearing a blue fallen frenzy dotted with white, and being cultured in company with Dr. Doyle, the lively young dentist who had recently taken an office in the National Bank block. He was a graduate of the University of Minnesota Dental Department. He had oily black hair and smiled with gold-filled teeth before one came to the real point of a joke. He sang in the Congregational Church Choir and played tennis in a crimson and black blazer, the only one in Jerusalem. To Carl, Dr. Doyle was dismayingly mature and smart. He horribly feared him as a rival. For the second time that evening, he did not balk fate by fearing it. The dentist was a rival. After fluttering about the mature charms of Miss Diaz, the school drawing-teacher, and taking a tentative buggy ride or two with the miller's daughter, Dr. Doyle was bringing all the charm of his professional position and professional teeth and patent leather shoes to bear upon Gertie. And Gertie was interested, obviously. She was all of eighteen tonight. She frowned slightly as she turned on the piano stool at Carl's entrance and mechanically, this is a pleasant surprise. Then, enthusiastically, isn't it too bad that Dr. Doyle was out of town, or I would have invited him to my party, and he would have given us some of his lovely songs. Do try the second verse, Doctor. The harmony is so lovely. Carl sat at the other end of the library from Gertie and the piano, while Mrs. Cowles entertained him. He obediently said yes'm, no'm, to the observation which she offered from the fullness of her lack of experience of life. He sat straight and still. Behind his fixed smile, he was simultaneously longing to break into the musical fiesta, 
and envying the dentist's ability to get married without having to wait to grow up, and trying to follow what Mrs. Cowles was saying. She droned while crocheting with high-minded industry on a useless piano scarf. Do you uh, still go hunting, Carl? Yes'm. Quite a little rabbit hunting. Oh, not very much. At the distant piano across the shining acres of floor, the mystical woman and a dentist had ceased singing and were examining a fresh sheet of music. The dentist coyly poked his finger at her coiffure, and she slapped the finger, gurgling. "'I hope you don't neglect your schoolwork, though, Carl.' Mrs. Cowles held the scarf nearer the lamp and squinted at it, deliberately and solemnly, through the eyeglasses that loitered at atop her severe nose. A headachy scent of mothballs was in the dull air. She forbiddenly moved the shade of the lamp about a tenth of an inch. She removed some non-existent dust from the wrought-iron standard. Her gesture said that the lamp was decidedly more chic than the pink-shaded hanging lamps raised and lowered on squeaking chains, which characterized most Dorlamon living rooms. She glanced at the red lambkin over the nearest window. The mothball smell grew more stupefying. Carl felt stuffy in the top of his nose as he mumbled, "'Well, I worked pretty hard at chemistry, but, gee, I can't see much to all this Latin.' "'When you're a little older, Carl, you'll learn that things that you like now aren't necessarily the things that are good for you. I used to say to Gertrude, of course, she is older than you, but she hasn't been a young lady for so very long, even yet, and I used to say to her, Gertrude, you will do exactly what I tell you to do, and not what you want to do, and we shall make no more words about it. And I think she sees now that her mother was right about some things. Dr. Doyle said to me, and of course you know, Carl, that he's a very fine scholar. Our pastor told me that the doctor reads French better than he does, and the doctors told me some things about modern French authors that I didn't know, and I used to read French almost as well as English when I was a girl. My teachers all told me, and he says that he thinks that Gertrude has a very fine mind, and he was so glad that she hasn't been taken in by all this hysterical, wicked way girls have today of thinking they know more than their mothers. Yes, she is, Gertie is. I think she's got a very fine mind, Carl commented. From the other end of the room, Gertie could be overheard confiding to the dentist in tones of hush and delicious adult scandal. They say that when she was in St. Paul, she... So Mrs. Cowles serenely sniffed on, while the bridge of Carl's nose felt broader and broader, stretching wider and wider, as that stuffy feeling increased and the intensive heat stung his eyelids. You see, you mustn't think because you'd rather play around with the boys than study Latin, Carl, that it's the fault of your Latin teacher. She nodded to him with a condescending smile that was infinitely insulting. He knew it and resented it. But he did not resent it actively, for he was busy marveling. How the dickens is it I never heard Doc Doyle was stuck on Gertie. Everybody thought he was going with Brenda. Dang him, anyway. The way he snickers, you'd think she was his best girl. Mrs. Cowles was loftily pursuing her pillared way. Latin was known to be the best study for developing the mind a long, long time and her clicking crochet needles impishly echoed a long, long time, 
and the odor of the mothballs got down into Carl's throat, while in the golden Olympian atmosphere at the other end of the room, Gertie coyly pretended to slap the dentist's hand with a series of tittering taps. A long, long time before either you or I were born, Carl, and we can't very well set ourselves up to be wiser than the wisest men that ever lived, now can we? Again the patronizing smile. That would scarcely... Carl resolved. This has got to stop. I got to do something. He felt her monologue as a blank steel wall, which he could not pierce, aloud. Yes, that's so, I guess. Say, that's a fine dress Gertie's got on tonight, ain't it? Say, I've been learning to play in crocodile at Ben Rusk's. You got a board, haven't you? Would you like to play? Does the doctor play? Indeed, I haven't the slightest idea, but I have very little doubt that he does. He plays tennis so beautifully. He is going to teach Gertrude in the spring. She stopped and again held the scarf up to the light. I am so glad that my girlie, that was so naughty, once and ran away with you. I don't think I shall ever get over the awful fright I had that night. I am so glad that now she is growing up. Clever people like Dr. Doyle appreciate her so much, so very much. She dropped her crochet to her lap and stared squarely at Carl. Her warning that he would do exceedingly well to go home was more than plain. He stared back, agitated, but not surrendering. Deliberately, almost suavely, with ten years of experience added to the sixteen years that he had brought into the room, he said, "'I'll see if they like to play.' He sauntered to the other in the room, abashed before the mystic woman, and ventured. "'I saw Ray today. I've got to be going pretty quick, but I was wondering if you two like to play some chronicle?' Gertie said slowly, "'I'd like to, Carl, but—' Unless you'd like to play, Doctor. Why, of course, it's common little default to play, Miss Cowles, but I was just hoping to have the pleasure of hearing you make some more of your delectable music, bowed the dentist, and Gertie bowed back, and their smiles joined in a glittery bridge of social aplomb. Oh, yes, from Carl, that just do, but you had not to play too much if you haven't been well. Oh, Carl, shrieked Gertie. Ought not to, not hadn't ought to. Ought not to, repeated Mrs. Cowles icily, while the dentist waved his hand in an amused manner and contributed, Ought not to say, hadn't ought to, as my preceptor used to tell me. I'd like to hear you sing Longfellow's Psalm of Life, Miss Cowles. Don't you think Longfellow's a bum poet? growled Carl. Bone Stillman says Longfellow's the grind organ of poetry, like this. Life is real, life is earnest, dum dee diddle dee duddle dum Carl, ordered Mrs. Cowles, you will please to never mention that Stillman person in my house. Oh, Carl, rebuked Gertie. She rose from the piano stool, her essence of virginal femininity, its pure and cloistered and white camisole odor bespelled Carl to fainting timidity. And while he was thus defenseless, the dentist thrust. Why, they tell me Stillman doesn't even believe the Bible. Carl was not to retrieve his credit with Gertie, but he couldn't betray Bone Stillman. Hastily, yes, maybe that way. Oh, say, doctor, Pete Jordan was telling me, liar, 
that you were one of the best tennis players at the U. Gertie sat down again. The dentist coyly fluffed his hair and appreciated. Oh, no, I wouldn't say that. Carl had won. Instantly, they three became a country club of urban aristocrats, who laughed at the poor rustics of Jollerman for knowing nothing of golf and polo. Carl was winning their tolerance, though not their close attention, by relating certain interesting facts from the inside pages of the local paper as to how far the tennis rackets sold in one year would extend, if laid end to end, when he saw Gertie and her mother glance at the hall. Gertie giggled. Mrs. Cowles frowned. He followed their glance. Clumping through the hall was his second cousin, Lena, the Cowles's hired girl. Lena nodded and said, "'Hello, Carl.' Gertie and the dentist raised their eyebrows at each other. Carl talked for two minutes about something he did not know what, and took his leave. In the intensity of his effort to be respectively dignified, he stumbled over the hall hat-rack. He heard Gertie yelp with laughter. "'I got a good college. Be worthy of her,' he groaned all the way home. "'And I can't afford to go to the U of M. I'd like to be free, like Bone says, but I've got to go to Plato.'" End of chapter 5